Hello, welcome. I'm Gabby. This is the My Possible Self podcast. We're here to help you navigate through life's challenges, offering tips, tools, techniques, and education to help you take care of yourself. Today, we might as well jump straight into the theme of the episode, bipolar disorder. I will be the first to hold my hands up and admit I do not know enough about this mental illness and I've wanted to record an episode for quite some time, not only to better educate myself, but also anyone else who, like me, doesn't know much and is open to learning more. Not to mention those living with bipolar who might find this episode useful in terms of the insight and reassurance that is coming your way from today's guest. Bipolar disorder is a mental health condition that affects your mood. It can swing from one extreme to the other. People with bipolar experience both episodes of severe depression and episodes of mania, which presents as overwhelming joy, excitement or happiness, huge energy, a reduced need to sleep and reduced inhibitions. Bipolar disorder is widely believed to be the result of chemical imbalances in the brain. The chemicals responsible for controlling the brain's functions are called neurotransmitters and include noradrenaline, serotonin and dopamine. It's also thought bipolar disorder is linked to genetics as it does seem to run in families. But no single gene is responsible for bipolar disorder. Instead, there are a number of genetic and environmental factors which are thought to act as triggers. So let's meet today's guest. Nick Pryor is an entrepreneur and doctor who has first-hand experience of living with bipolar. Working as a psychiatrist and living with bipolar type 2 gives Nick a rare 360-degree view into the world of mental health. He believes in the concept of mental fitness, the practice of doing things that are good for our minds on a regular basis, as of course do we here at My Possible Self. Now let's proceed with the episode. Nick Pryor, thank you so much for talking to my possible self. Um, we've got quite a lot to cover within the next 45 minutes because I'm very interested to know about your life as an entrepreneur, but I want to shelve that right now and talk to you about not only being um, a psychiatrist, you're a doctor for the NHS, but from your own personal experience living with bipolar type 2. So if you don't mind, I'd like to kick off this episode by learning about bipolar because I know there's different types, but I don't know the difference. Is there much of a difference between the types? So um, maybe you could put your doctor cap on first and talk to us a little bit about bipolar yeah of course Gabby lovely um, to be here today and to have this opportunity to to speak with my possible self um, I'm a huge advocate of what they're doing and um, yeah I hope I can enlighten or, or, or kind of provide a few insights into kind of the world of bipolar whether it's as a doctor or, or as someone living with it um, as a patient so yeah let's start with the kind of doctor hat on I'll start as simple as I can and I let we can hopefully kind of build build on it but Bipolar is is in the kind of psychiatry and psychology field is is known as an affective disorder, uh, and an effect is a bit like uh, the weather um, when a mood is a bit like the climate. 
So it's basically how you present in that moment to a clinician. And so that and the affective disorders covers any kind of mood disorder ultimately. So it can be anything from depression to bipolar to schizoaffective disorder. And you know, depression is much more common, but bipolar is in some ways more popularized through media and, and in, in the kind of cultural imagination of the population at large. Mm. Bipolar kind of kind of says it in its name, bi means two. Um, you know, whether it's bisexual or bipolar, people bi is, 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 is means two. And it means that basically you have ups and you have downs. And these can vary hugely to the individual. But ultimately, or, or the way we have to as psychiatrists and as medical professionals try and find ways to diagnose people so that then we can actually effectively learn going forward because we have to categorize people as so that's not always the perfect fit but the definitions are important and so for bipolar type one uh it's actually the more kind of extreme version so it's when you have had clinical episodes of depression and you've also had one or more episodes of mania and mania is is the opposite of depression it's when you're overly uh, motivated um and to when you're manic or you have a, a manic episode which basically means you have type one is when your your mood influences the way in which you're thinking to the point where you have delusions so this is when you have fixed beliefs that do not make sense to um, someone who is not experiencing a mental health problem or someone who is um, has capacity and can can view the world in the way that the majority of us view the world. So that is um, a very scary experience. I think you know lots of people you know might have experienced one-offs kind of psychotic episodes, whether it's using kind of um, drugs or substance misuse or whatever. But they often come and go within the hour or within a night. But when you're in bipolar, you're you're heading towards a, um, a period of weeks if not months of being in this state and it can become worse and worse and and that is um often requires intervention um medically um and then longer term more kind of softer kind of psychological input and social input but uh, just to kind of get a bit more back to where i was so that's bipolar type one um and interestingly it's you know it is defined by um the dsm or the icd the two big bits of literature that are used for by psychiatrists so the dsm is used in america the icd is used in in europe and as soon as you've had one manic episode then you are for you know according to psychiatrists you have bipolar type one and you will do for the rest of your life um and that will dictate how we think about um managing things going forward Bipolar type 2 is a slightly mellower form of, of bipolar in, in that you don't go to the point of being manic and being delusional, but you get quite close and you go through those early experiences of getting excited and energized and um, highly sexed um, often and, and spending lots of money, being argumentative. And it can cause lots of diff difficulties in your in your life in terms of relationships in particular and and at work and things like that. But you don't ever get to the point where you have delusions. Uh, and that's the kind of, I, I personally have type two. Uh, and it's interesting because in some ways it doesn't sound so extreme, but actually the, it can be much more insidious because those periods where you're actually um, 
it's much more subtle and it can be harder for people to recognize that you're ill it can be harder to actually seek help because what we find often with mental health generally is is that people are seeking help when they reach kind of crisis point so that's kind of just a, a quick whistle stop tour of bipolar type one and type two and my last point on that is that it is highly variable i've met patients who've got what we would term bipolar type one but have never experienced depression and you can have people who've had 20 episodes of depression but only one episode of mania so there's a huge variation or kind of a gaussian in which all of these different experiences of bipolar fit but what is you know as a clinician is and uh fascinating is, is that when people do get really unwell there are these common features and you and you when someone walks through the door you know when you're um, assessing someone for the first time as to whether they should be sectioned or whether they should be on the mental health unit, you can, within two or three seconds, know that someone is manic and, and, and obviously you go further. Right. But it's a, it's a very visceral, very... Um, you, you can almost smell it in, in, in the room when, when someone's manic. Wow. Is it something that you are born with, but it might not get diagnosed until you know later down the line is it or is it something that can like appear at some point in your life yeah so a very important question and i think the short answer is that it's mental health problems are fundamentally very complex um the mind is what makes us who we are there are over nine billion neuronal connections and therefore when we try and think in terms of modern psychiatry, we try and think through the lens of the biopsychosocial model. So there are biological factors, psychological factors, and social factors. Biological factors are the kind of the, the kind of what you'd call genetic factors. So like, do people have a predisposition? Is it to do with kind of their family history, or, or potentially even their physical health? You've got the psychological factors. You know, how were they um, taught to behave, or, or kind of as children? How were they educated? Did they have any trauma? Um, have they just had a breakdown of a marriage? Uh, and then there's the more social, so the more he- here and now. So do you, are you financially secure? Do you have good relationships? And it's, it's a combination of all of those things that culminate in, an act- in someone actually presenting with mental health um, problems and, and symptoms. But what is interesting, and I think it's really important to make this point, is, is that every illness has that complexity it's not just mental health problems physical health problems are the same so there are a lot of things like i mean diabetes type 2 is a good example like so a lot of that's associated with weight and diet and and things that you do in environmental factors and you know some of the most kind of uh, severe and well-known mental health problems have much higher biological propensities than most physical health problems so if, for example, you separated at birth uh, someone, an identical twin, someone went out to Australia and someone out, out to rural Africa or had totally different lives, there would still be, with schizophrenia, an 80% chance that if one of them had schizophrenia, the other person would. And that shows how strong that genetic link is. Bipolar is quite similar. It's that still like, remarkably high at 60%. And then it, it still falls amongst other illnesses. But, you know, even... Depression is as high as 10%. And so, so it, there is a big genetic factor, but it's never um, the only factor. I'd like to understand a little bit more about like mania. There's the mania and hypermania. What's the difference? Yeah, so 
um, mania and uh, hypomania. So hypo is in um, less. So you know, if someone's hypoglycemic, it's when they've got low low blood sugar. So it's something that. So it's just basically a way of language to say it's it's less than mania. Basically. Ah, and then on the flip side of that, it's the depressive episode. So that's like you said, it's the buy, it's the from one side of the scale to the next. In terms of for you with with your story, like when, if you don't mind sharing a little bit and only as much as you're comfortable with, was it something that was hereditary in your family? Um, when did you notice or maybe was it a family member first that noticed something wasn't quite right and, and needed attention? Yeah, so I think um, you asked earlier as well about how quickly people recognise, and I think it, there's a very stark and scary stat that the average time it takes for someone from the first symptoms that they exhibit in hindsight to when they actually get a diagnosis of bipolar is nine years. So there's a lot of time in the middle where people are not getting the appropriate care and support and management, and that has longer-term implications as well because every episode you have ultimately has the potential to impact your long-term behavioural patterns and, and kind of the person who you are. Yeah, more personally, come from a background of, uh, or a family who've had um, significant mental health problems. My grandmother committed suicide and I never actually knew her, um, but she committed suicide, I think, at the age when my mum was 21. My grandmother was mostly around um, severe kind of depression, but my mother then was diagnosed with bipolar and still has bipolar and it's hard to kind of find the right words but I think she's quite happy with me saying this but she's she she's kind of lucky to be alive I think um, through the experiences she's had with bipolar and then I so I was in an environment where actually you know there was still the stigma and the taboo but at least I knew people who'd, who'd been through some of this and I think for me it's quite important and quite moving to see the progression where and this is a bit crude and maybe it's it's not statistically significant or anything but you know my grandmother you know in that generation you know ended up with the worst outcome she ended up committing suicide my mother you know has um been lucky to stay alive and it's been a huge impact on her life and for me it's still a big impact but it seems to be less of an impact than for my mother so it's this generational progression that kind of is good to see and I think we're feeling that across society in terms of how much people are willing to talk about their mental health and 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 problems. Mm. Do you think with with bipolar again correct me if I'm wrong but like um anxiety and depression is is now talked about a lot and in terms of like opening up the conversation around mental health definitely over the the past few years there's been a really positive shift where people are opening up and we've still got a way to go obviously um, and I think the, the pandemic highlighted that as well but in terms of and this is coming from my perspective and my own personal experience because I don't personally know anybody with bipolar or if I do they haven't shared that information with me so I don't feel like I know as much on this particular disorder as I do say anxiety and depression so I do think which is why it's great that we're, we're talking today but you know what do you think in terms of that yeah I mean I think it is still I mean bipolar is a much rarer condition than, than depression and, and anxiety so you know crudely speaking depression anxiety probably is at some point in our lives kind of 
25 to 30 percent of us will experience depression or anxiety and and that's not undermining it it's still just as significant but it's important to recognize that it's probably a, a tenth of that who experience bipolar but that is still three to four percent of the population and i think statistically you you have probably known someone quite well but they haven't wanted to share that information i think that's probably the, the likelihood um or they could be undiagnosed yeah yeah but i think the the confident a lot of the work i'm doing at the moment beyond my kind of day job at the nhs is is working with the staff network for um yeah, kind of lived experience of mental um illness so we're trying to create a a kind of safe space and a kind of a society and a network that kind of supports people to understand how they can use and um, communicate their their lived experience in, in a work setting. And I think it is really important. I mean, I've gone through phases where I've overshared and, you know, that's particularly common when you're hypermanic uh, to overshare. And, and fortunately, I never crossed the Rubicon or, or, or kind of have, have got into too much trouble because you can do. And I think it is really important, I think, on reflection, as I've got more experience with sharing my own experience of bipolar is to is that it's not something just to talk about flippantly it's something that one needs to really consider and have a structure and a plan about how far you can go and, and what you are willing to share and, and also why are you sharing it and I, these types of questions need to be considered and, and and that's what we're doing it so with the trust i work at is one of the biggest mental health trusts in the country employs eleven thousand people and we're trying to create a training program we're, we're about to actually go with our first cohort in the next couple of months of basically providing training to members of staff who are interested in, in, in sharing their lived experience. Mm. So just going back to what you were saying about the average um, time frame of somebody being diagnosed is like nine years. If we, I guess, to be more vigilant in terms of, like you said, I probably know somebody, maybe they're diagnosed, maybe they're not, but like in terms of like for us to look out for ourselves even, as well as loved ones or colleagues. Yeah. Where do we go from here? Yeah. And also I say that not in a kind of um, like you should, you should have noticed. I think it's, it's also really important to, to recognise that the significance of, of a mental health problem and the psychological distress and the impact that has on an individual. And I think it's, it's, not, it's not something that, we, that everyone will want to share and, and, and necessarily is sensible to share. So I don't think the locus, I mean, obviously we can all try and support everyone more in different ways my emphasis is on actually empowering the individual with the mental health problem to communicate better with their loved ones and their friends because you know the problem is is that with mental health problems it's very difficult for the loved ones to be on the um you need to empower your loved ones to be able to help you and and the best and the most important thing about most mental health problems not all but the majority is that there is this relapsing and remitting kind of pattern. So you go through a very severe episode, you might be feeling suicidal, you can't get out of bed, you lose your job, whatever. And I've been through a similar pattern myself. And you then actually come out the other side. And it's very difficult to uh, remember what that destructive 
few months all you really want to do is look forward because you don't really want to remember <laughs> what you've been through so you're a lot of people continue just to walk forward and also there is this amazing ability certainly in my experience with bipolar to forget like when you're really unwell i think the psychological distress and in some ways the trauma or whatever means that you don't remember that period very well particularly when you're manic so a lot of people will will say that when they've gone tr truly up and high and manic they might not remember so what i like to try and focus on is how can we get people who've experienced those extremes to actually recognize them and say i don't want to go there anymore and uh, and one of the people who i'm very close to um who actually i've been working with quite a lot recently the biggest thing was this was connecting the long-term implications of not acting proactively so if you continually to cycle up and down up and down it's so difficult to build a life for yourself whether it's relationships a family or, or holding down a job and for being financially independent you see it time and time again where people have you know they're trying so hard but they haven't been able to break that cycle and what that really takes is in a moment of clarity when you're actually well and you can actually put some things in place and you can say right this is what i need to do now that's kind of the the thing that gets me interested is how can we help people get to that point yeah because also you know when you're going through a bad episode it's not just impacting you it's impacting the people around you as well right so it's like you might be kind of then okay and you almost kind of put shelve it and whatnot but then perhaps the loved ones it's not so easy for them to forget if it's been quite a difficult time so that's got to help those around you as as well as yourself right yeah no i think that's a, a really important point and i'm a huge um advocate for the people those people i mean we i like to turn them your rocks the people who stick by you through thick and thin and and are kind of that foundation is absolutely essential certainly for myself anyway and i think the you know i, I do have quite an interesting viewpoint having witnessed you know as a, as a child as a son my mother's Ill, uh, mental illness you know having seen my patients and then having experienced it myself and i think what always shocks me is how i still come up wanting and there's still a, so much more that i need to learn and, and so despite my medical training my fascination with with mental health my experience of it um on the other side as a family member and all of these things i still get it wrong um sometimes and that goes the complexity and how difficult these these illnesses are are to manage and is this why number one you're so passionate about trying to help others um as well and then also the birth of mindful a digital platform which i definitely want to learn loads about when you it's just when you you mentioned about um when you're I'm air quoting well, or you've come throughout the episode, it's not just taking that for granted and not doing anything. It's like continuing to look after yourself. And I think that's just that's with any mental health troubles that anybody has, because we all we all struggle in life. Nobody has it completely plain sailing, just some has it worse than others. It's, you know, like we know to nourish our body with good food is going to help our physical health. And yet we still have a way to go in terms of nourishing the mind to give ourselves the best shot so then when the challenging times are presented that we've we've got the tools to to cope better i suppose yeah I think 
I was talking about it to someone the other day, and I there are lots of motivations for me wanting to help people with mental illnesses, whether it's seeing my family unwell or or um, but but ultimately, you know, I was always interested, but it was experiencing that psychological distress and pain and depression myself that gave me the very direct kind of empathy to know that that's what I wanted to stop. And I think, you know, I, I, I use this quote a few too many times and I'm sure it's been said before, but I kind of thought I came up with myself. It's a bit cliche, but, you know, when, when you're depressed, you don't think you deserve help. When you're anxious, you're too scared to ask for help. And when you're psychotic, you don't think you need help. So ultimately, by the time you're unwell, it's it's in some ways too late. I mean, we can it's still doable and you can manage it, but you're going to have to go through a, a, a process of recovery. And, and what's much more interesting is getting there before that um, crisis or before that illness rears its head. So I am much more interested in the preventative side, you know, whether we've seen it through, I think the population as a whole has been made more aware recently of the importance of prevention, whether it's with vaccines for COVID or the MMR vaccine, or, or just, I think, generally speaking, there's a lot more talk about prevention within medicine as a whole, whether it's exercising or diet, but there, there seems to have been a lag, and as there always has been, actually, um, or, you know, a lot of people talk about mental health being the Cinderella of the NHS, and there's never quite been the funding, there's never quite been the campaigning or the advocacy for it, so, you know, that's what I'm trying to pick up, I suppose, with Mindful is this idea that we all need to do more for our minds. We're all living in quite a complex modern world that in some ways we're not very used to. And whether it's the social, the dopamine hit of social media, the loss of community, uh, the loneliness that COVID might have provoked, all of these changes are, are feeding into a, a baseline of stress and anxiety that is higher than, than it was even 10, 20 years ago. And, this is, and we're seeing this very directly in terms of the incidence and prevalence of mental health problems. You know, it's almost, you know, common mental health problems have doubled in the last 20 or 30 years. So with Mindful, I suppose, what we're trying to do is say, yeah, we all need to look after our minds. Um, the mind is very complex. It needs to be, the solution for, for me is going to be totally different to what the solution is for you, Gabby. Like you're going to have a different collection of things that, that works for your mind and that's going to be the case for nearly everyone in in the in the population you know i think i've already said it there are nine billion neuronal connections in the frontal cortex like it's going to be it's got to be something very specific and ultimately um there are a lot of brilliant scientists working at the moment on in mental health uh, there's a lot of progress but it's been quite slow recently there hasn't been any massive breakthroughs in terms of medication for 20 or 30 years and i can't see it changing hugely from a kind of diagnostic or, or kind of pharmacological point of view soon. So, so what we need to conclude from that is, is that the only way we can really find out what works for our mind is through trial and error. So we just have to go out into the world and find what works for us. And because as a psychiatrist, I don't have an MRI scan or a blood test that can I can tell you, Gabby, well, actually, you need to go and be part of a choir for one hour every fortnight and maybe volunteer yeah. once a month, yeah. go jogging two or three times a week. Um, whatever it is, find that collection of six to eight things that keep your mind healthy. And that's what we're trying to do at Mindful is create a library of mental fitness ideas and an engaging enough content that enables people to find their 
six to eight things that works for their mind. Yeah, I think that's um, brilliant because just the fact that you are a like a doctor and I think about just from my own loved ones experiences if they're struggling and it might be like um, after they've had a child, it might be um, caring for a sick loved one all the different facets of like why they've gone to the doctor because they've reached that point where they are really 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 struggling and every single time without fail it's like here's a prescription for whichever antidepressant and i'm not bashing i'm just that's they've got a 10 minute window yeah, and, they, yeah. and that somebody's turning up and they're distressed and they've probably had to gotten to a certain point already to have made that phone call to the doctor's surgery to be like i need help so obviously the doctor's going to do what they can in 10 minutes but I just think it's so interesting and amazing that you are doing this holistically in terms of again like helping us find those moments of joy that sort of ease the stress levels and make us take us to a a, a nicer place rather than just the bombardment of how we're going to pay the bills and how we're going to do this and you know all the things that life throws at us yeah yeah, and I think ultimately, you know, if you actually look up the definition of mental health, it's, the problem is, is that the language has been stolen kind of for good reasons. So if I'm working as a psychiatrist or as a, a mental health nurse, or whatever, it's, it, it's a softer language to say you have a mental health problem when actually well, the more direct language is you have a mental illness. And, and, and the reason we've done that is to try and shift some of the stigma and the, the negativity. That, but ultimately what it's done is turn mental health into quite a negative word. Whereas actually you look at the definition of mental health and it's really the same as what I'm talking about with Mindful. Um, but I think you have to pay attention. Language and, and positioning and brands is incredibly important. Everyone's attention spans are incredibly small and short at the moment. So, so you have to think about, and I think this is also what gets me excited and why I've found the energy and space for Mindful is, is that there are frustrations with the NHS. You know, if you're a GP, you know, GPs manage 70% of mental health problems. You know, I, I only see the more extreme side that actually get accepted for a referral. So they're doing the day-to-day uh, and they do have these 10-minute consultations. It's very limited what they can do. And they've got two options. They either, and they probably, if they're good, they'll do both at the same time. They'll prescribe you with a low dose of a antidepressant, whether it's fluoxetine, sertraline, citalopram. And then they'll also put you on the waiting list for a course of, eight sessions of CBT um, and but that might be a two or three month wait and then they don't have any more to give and I think that there's just a lot more stuff to give I think ultimately we know there's more like people need continuity they need to know that someone's keeping an eye on them and, and whatever and I think what we've got to accept sadly is that the NHS isn't in the next even the next 10 years going to be doing that I don't think anyway and therefore we need to innovate. We need to find cheap, scalable, accessible ways to provide this more holistic um, and really what a GP would call kind of social prescribing. So it's just it's directing and signposting people so that they can take back control. Oh, oh God, I'm using a, a Brexit quote by mistake, um, but they can <laughs> they so they can take on the um, responsibility themselves and obviously there's only so much that certain people can take on but I think given the limitations of the NHS we need to be looking for these kind of innovations. Do you think as well like it's about shifting perceptions because like there's still this kind of like um, you've got to be busy all the time and it's like you you punish yourself if you give yourself that minute to like 
especially if you know you've got a family that you know well who who am i to let myself go out for a nice walk and take have a takeaway coffee when i've got to get the kids ready for this that and the other or you know like i, I still feel like people think they've got to cram everything into their day as well and then it, they wonder why they're so stressed out and wired do you see yeah, that I mean, with it's your a real patients problem. yeah well the problem is actually i don't actually see that because by the time i see my patients it tends to be much more but that's more what the GP and the primary care setting would, would see. And I think the, and obviously I see it as well in my patients, but it's often not the the priority, interestingly, which maybe it should be. But um, the reframe, what I would call a reframe is so important. It's about kind of making people value quite mundane and quite simple and quite potentially unsexy things. But, you know, whether it's um, making a cup of tea or like you say, you know, for me, for example, a big, boundary for some reason for me was being like actually I do quite like a pedicure and actually having that little bit of time to myself and 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 someone looking after me once a, a month or however often I do it is is a value and I think I suppose it's yet again quite cliche but it's very true that, that you, know, you can't give from an empty cup and I think hopefully I mean this is what's also really exciting is, is that COVID has created this um, opportunity for people to really reassess what is important to them and I think there's going to be a moment in the next three to six months where people will either settle back into their bad habits or they will um, find these new kind of positive approaches to, the, to their routine and their way of life and that's why we're so keen to you know we, we, we launched our app just a few months ago and there's there's lots of improvements to be made but we do think this is a really important time for people to be given access and to kind of engaging you know what what we like to call it is is you know we have to be very careful because ultimately our offering is a digital solution and often we're criticizing the whole you know um obsessed and um with our screens and screen time and all these things but yeah well but we, i loved the challenge know, it's set on Instagram and, and yeah, I, I do acknowledge the irony that we're talking right now on Zoom and like we're coming from a place of two apps <laughs> that help people with the <laughs> mental health. But um, I actually really loved the fact that you chose Sunday and this sort of Sunday screen time challenge. Talk a little bit about that, if you don't mind, as we're sort of wrapping things up, because I just absolutely loved that. And it did take me back to like being a kid when, you you know, showing my age, but we didn't have phones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know I think kind of the digital detox or trying to find a way to get people excited about about that. And uh, I mean, I think that's the other thing we've got to accept that our minds have changed and that we are our attention spans are shorter. But I and that's why we, we've we always, you know, that screen time campaign was, was great for us and, and something we will be doing on an annual basis. But for us, there's this bigger idea of we used to call ourselves the app to get off apps. So. Uh, we, we want people to come in, engage with our content and then go out back into the real world. And I think the, there's this balancing act. You know, obviously, our content's got to be engaging enough to bring people onto our platform, but then it's also got to be good enough to send them back out again. And we kind of ethically and from our principal point of view, you know, we'll always be very careful with where that line is. And, you know, another term we sometimes use is this, even if we are getting people onto the app and onto their phones, ultimately, I would call what we'd be engaging people with is kind of positive scrolling. Like you're just going through lots of good things for your mind. 
it's very different to the experience with Instagram or the wormholes that you can go into with some of your social media channels. So we have to be very careful about that. And, you know, we've termed it as, so, you know, if, if classical social media is kind of the seeking cycle where you're constantly looking for that next dopamine hit, uh, we call kind of the mindful experience kind of the fulfillment cycle. So you, you go go through a loop where you always come out with something of meaning in in, in the real world. Um, but yeah, this is something we're going to be always focused on, and I think it is a, a really important balance to to strike. Mm, I love that, and it's easy to find on the app store. I've downloaded it today. It's wonderful, so people should go check it out for sure. Um, Nick, this has been great. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for, for sharing your story with Bipolar and, and helping us understand a bit more about it. Thanks so much, Gabby, and it's been a pleasure doing a podcast with my possible self. Hello, it's Gabby. I'm back. Thanks again to Nick Pryor and thank you to you for making it to the end of this episode. If you're listening on the day of its release, which is March 30th, today is World Bipolar Day. World Bipolar Day is observed every year on March 30th on the birthday of Dutch painter Vincent van Gogh, one of the most influential artists in the history of Western art. His creativity was paralleled with his mental illness and after his death, he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And to conclude today's episode, I will leave you with this. Living with bipolar disorder is not easy, but in the words of Van Gogh himself, the beginning is perhaps more difficult than anything else, but keep heart, it will turn out all right. Until the next one, take care. Thanks again for listening and bye for now.